morning. It's so good to see your faces. It's delightful to be back on Covenant's campus. It's a joy to be in this chapel again. I have so many memories from this uh, distinctive space, from the annual, you know, fall convocations with the bagpipes and the cheering, uh, to the fascinating flow of speakers from all over the world coming in and out, to the music that I know still fills this place, not only in worship, but also in concerts and talent shows. I love the talent show. And uh, musicals. Best of all, maybe just the regular singing of hymns and songs together. It's also fun to come back to a place with a bit of personal heritage. Uh, Over in that stained glass window right there, uh, one of the faces representing the college's history is that of my grandfather, Buzzwell, who was one of the original professors of Bible and theology at Covenant College and Seminary. So seeing his face and talking about Veterans Day kind of makes a connection in my mind as we commemorate the close of World War I. My grandfather, Buswell, served as a chaplain in World War I. As a 23-year-old, he was assigned to the expeditionary forces in France. Uh, One of my favorite parts of his journals describes a revival that took place among his troops just before the final Western Front offensive in 1918. And he tells of damming up a stream to make this big muddy pool in which they baptized over a hundred new converts uh, right before that offensive. He wrote that they um, sprinkled or dunked the troops, whatever the troops chose. I'm really thankful for that history. It actually connects to what I would like to talk about today. Let me begin first with what you might call kind of an ordinary story, and I'll finish this morning with kind of an extraordinary one, but here's the ordinary one. It's from when I was a lot younger, still finishing up graduate work and just starting a family. I was struck one autumn by one of the best things about leading a Bible study group. The group I'm remembering was a church group of maybe 15 people. I was leading them in studying Ecclesiastes. And one of the group members brought along a friend uh, uh, early on in this weekly study. The friend was a reserved, very thoughtful woman. She was single, a medical doctor with a very busy life. I think she came just to please her friend who had urged her to come and try it out. This woman did not know the Bible. She did not know the Lord. I was really glad to see her, this visitor, but I was also a little intimidated. This was the first time I had ever led a study in the book of Ecclesiastes, and I was finding it rather challenging, which I still do. Um, I have to admit, I secretly wish that we were studying the Gospel of John for this visitor. Uh, But we made our way week by week into that amazing wisdom literature. And our new friend kept coming. She told us later she was just really taken by the literature. She thought it was really beautiful. And we came to know her. We prayed for her. Many people, including the pastors of the church, were praying for this woman more than she knew. It turned out that this woman was lonely. By God's grace, she was just at the point in her life where she was prepared to get what the book of Ecclesiastes reveals, that is the the futility of seeking meaning and all the successes and activities around us that just vanish like the wind when we try to grasp on to them. She eventually began to ask about the one the Bible tells us is the only answer to the meaninglessness that haunts every soul who's alienated from our creator god and she began to read through her bible she began to come to church before too many months went by god changed her heart and she put her faith in christ 
This woman is a vibrant Christian, a faithful church member. I just saw her the other day in the park. That's the first story. And it introduces our topic, a topic we sometimes label evangelism. Now, I chose this topic not because I am an expert in it, but more because I'm not. I've just become both convicted and thrilled by the beauty and importance of this subject for believers. I actually hesitate to call the topic evangelism because that word tends to conjure up lots of connotations, connotations of accosting people on the street to preach to them, uh, or of counting the notches in our evangelistic belts, you know, when we see conversions. But I do think we must retain that word evangelism and coax it back to healthy life if need be, because the root of it, of course, is evangel, gospel. For a believer in Jesus Christ, evangelism simply means sharing the gospel with one we hope will receive it. Now, gospel has become a word that we often tack on to various other words, you know, gospel music, gospel love, gospel coalition, and on and on. It is absolutely true that the gospel shapes and transforms every aspect of life and culture. Otherwise, there would be no meaning to a Christian liberal arts college. But at the heart of this holistic understanding of the gospel is the good news we believe and share. One of the clearest summaries of the good news comes in 1 Corinthians 15, where the Apostle Paul, in verse 1, says he writes to remind them of the gospel he preached to them. He calls the gospel the word preached, and he sums it up this way in verses 3 and 4. He says, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. What we're focusing on here today is sharing this gospel, this good news from God's word about what God has done for us in Christ through his death on our behalf and his resurrection from the dead. It's news that has to be shared and then received by faith. It's, it's news that the Bible says saves people when the Spirit moves them to receive it and to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. In believing this gospel, how amazing, we are saved from the wages of sin and given the gift of eternal life in Christ. To be clear, the gospel has a multitude of entailments that we are not talking about today and that bear talking about much. Believers show and share Jesus every moment of every day, right, in all my thoughts and words and doings all my days and all my hours. Still love singing that hymn, and it's true. But I'm focusing here on speaking the good news of the gospel. Now, to be organized, I'd like to suggest five myths about sharing the gospel, five untruths that I think discourage and disable us from telling people the good news. And for each untruth, I'll suggest a corresponding truth that can hearten us as bearers of gospel good news. So, myth number one. Let's just get it out on the table. Here it is. Sharing the gospel does not require words. That's myth number one. We've already looked into God's word on this matter. We've heard Paul's reference to the gospel as the preached word, uh, the message of Jesus' death and resurrection that we're called to receive by faith. Many good things should come with the words indeed. It's just that all the other things cannot replace the words. 
I was recently looking through a wonderful new-ish book titled Created to Flourish uh, by Peter Greer and Phil Smith. I'm sure many of you know it, on how employment-based solutions help eradicate poverty. And it was fun to find Phil Smith quoting a good friend on this very subject. So Smith writes, quote, Brian Fickert, founder and president of the Chalmers Center, once told me Christian development work must include a clear presentation of the gospel. Failure to do so denies individuals access to the only real solution to the fundamental causes of poverty. So there it is, the component of verbal witness cannot be missing. One of the most ardent evangelists I know is Rosaria Butterfield, a former professor of women's studies, specializing in queer theory in the English department at Syracuse University. Rosaria is now a committed Christian, writer, speaker, pastor's wife, busy homeschooling mother. She contributed a great chapter in a book I recently co-edited on this subject of spreading the word. And in that chapter, she sounds a radical call for Christians to reach out to the people around us with biblical hospitality. Uh, That's also the theme of her recent book, wonderfully titled, The Gospel Comes with a House Key. Her insistent message is that we've got to open up our lives and our homes to people as we share the gospel with them. In the process of all the vivid stories Rosaria tells, and she's really good at telling stories, it is beautiful to see how with all the people she's inviting into her life, she's talking and talking about Jesus. With her lesbian friends, she's talking about how the love of Jesus is different and and better than any other loves. With her neighbors around their table, Rosaria and her husband are reading the Bible. They're talking about it. You know, we Christians so often study the Word just to feed ourselves. It's good to feed ourselves. We need nourishment and growth, but we often forget to picture not just a closed private meal, but a large table where there's room for lots of people to be invited to join the feast. That's why I started with that story of a Bible study group. The most wonderful thing about it was that it grew as new believers pulled up to the table. Ecclesiastes actually turned out to be a powerful evangelistic book. The word is powerful, isn't it? Every part of it. Actually, speaking of Ecclesiastes, I recall the time R.C. Sproul came to this campus for some Reformation lectures, and he spoke at a luncheon where there was a Q&A session, and one of the students asked him how he came to know the Lord. And his answer was that he came to know the Lord through a verse from Ecclesiastes. He said, let, let, me, let me quote the verse for you. It's from, I think it's from Ecclesiastes 11, and it says, this is the verse through which R.C. Sproul was converted. It says, in the place where the tree falls, there it will lie. So he talked about how that picture, that metaphor just grasped his imagination and pierced his heart, and he understood through that picture that that's That's what his life was like. It was helpless and futile and purposeless. And that precipitated him to turn to the Lord Jesus Christ. In the timeline of redemptive history, we are living in what Scripture calls the last days, in the time between Jesus' first and second coming. These, These last days are the period in which the gospel is spreading near and far. 
Jesus said that when the gospel has been proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, then the end will come. Then Lord Jesus will come. That is, Jesus will come again to judge all and to live forever with his people in the new heaven and the new earth. Before he returned to heaven, Jesus' final call to his disciples and through them to all of us was to go and make disciples of all nations. That is, to make followers of Jesus all over the world, including every part we get to live. This is what we're to be about in this momentous time in which we live. In all the upheaval of our nation and our world, we Christians are to bring comfort and alleviation of suffering and blessing of all kinds indeed. And at the heart of it all is this call to alleviate eternal suffering and to bring eternal comfort as we share the good news of Jesus who came into all this mess to save us forever. Sometimes we hear it's better to wait to speak about Jesus, better to build relationships, you know, and wait for the right moment when a person is ready to hear. Sometimes waiting may be wise. Too often, it's an excuse not to speak, and the longer we wait, I find the more awkward it can become to speak. A woman who lives over in the Middle East, in a country not friendly to Christianity, tells the story of being interviewed for a job in a business there, and when the job interviewer asked why she and her husband chose that city, she answered that she and her husband were Christians, and they knew of an international church there in that city where they could worship and hear the Bible taught. So we might wonder, why did she do that? Why did she come out as a Christian so quickly? Was that wise? Well, she did get the job, and she later wrote this, it helped that I could naturally and immediately share that with them so that it's been easier for me to talk about my faith in the months following. It's not always easy, but I am praying for boldness to persevere and to share the gospel. If the first myth is that sharing the gospel doesn't require words, here's the truth that debunks that myth. Sharing the gospel means sharing God's word. Now, we don't always quote it directly, but it is the word of God we have to share. In God's good providence, he made us human beings to be word creatures in his image. How amazing that we can speak words and understand them and make things with them. How amazing that we can understand the gospel through the written words God inspired with Jesus Christ just shining out from beginning to end. This is what we have to share. It's the good news about how to live forever. Sharing the gospel means sharing God's word. So here's myth number two, and we'll move a little faster. Sharing the gospel is something I do by myself. The call to carry out the Great Commission feels really heavy when I picture myself walking alone on a steep road trying to get others to join me. What if we replace that lonely picture with a different one? How about a picture of God's people in the Old Testament as they walked together up toward Jerusalem for the feast days? whole groups and families talking and singing and taking in others along the way. That's a better picture because here's the truth that corrects this myth. The truth is that sharing the gospel is the church's calling from a sovereign God. There are two parts to that truth. This is the church's calling. First, it's not just mine or yours. It's the calling of God's people to be his body on earth uh, this is one reason I was excited to work on that edited book about evangelism. The book includes the voices of women from many different parts of Christ's body, many different contexts. 
to hear each other's stories is strengthening. I love the story in the chapter contributed by Covenant professor Camille Hallstrom about the hospitality of this college community to a remarkable playwright who visited us. I love the chapter from a South African woman who works in a hospital in Dubai about how she puts her faith and her work together. One theme running through the book is the church and how crucial the church family is as we share our lives with people who don't know what that family is like. But this truth has two parts, sharing the gospels. The church is calling from a sovereign God. And that last phrase is the greatest truth. It's the sovereign God who saves by his spirit through his son. He uses us but we don't do it. He does it. If we really believe the Bible's teaching that God chose us believers in Christ from before the foundation of the world, if we really believe that, then we realize we're not out to save anybody. We're out to bring the gospel to those whom God has prepared to hear. Now, it's not always as easy as Philip had it with the Ethiopian eunuch. Do you remember Acts 8? An angel told him exactly where to go, which guy to speak to, you know, that Ethiopian sitting over there in that chariot, reading the scriptures out loud. Uh, remember when Philip went to him, asked if he understood what he was reading, which was a really great first question, by the way. Um, the Ethiopian invited him to come up and sit with him and explain the verses he was reading, which happened to be from Isaiah 53, all about the lamb who was slain, directly pointing to the death of Christ. I love Acts 8.35. It says, Then Philip opened his mouth, <laughs> and beginning with this scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. And you know what happened. The eunuch believed. He was baptized right there by the side of the road. That story should hugely encourage us as a glimpse of how God really is preparing every encounter with people, every person who will believe, and every little part we have to play in the process. As by his spirit, he regenerates hearts and grants faith to receive the good news. I am pretty sure I'm not the only one who does not spend enough time asking God to open my eyes to the ones around me that he has prepared I'm always amazed at how God does answer when I even ask just a little. One quick answer from recent months stands out to me. As I was staying for a few weeks in another country, I had lots of opportunities to speak to groups, but one morning I prayed specifically for opportunities for more one-to-one -one, uh, gospel conversations. And that afternoon, as I stopped by a coffee shop, an English-speaking friend uh, from an international church there rushed up to me. She was wondering if I had a few moments to talk with her and her friend who was asking all sorts of questions about Christianity, and she didn't know what to say, and would I be willing to help? Yeah, I was willing. Um, it didn't turn out to be an easy conversation. This friend had hard questions. Uh, we probably dealt with some of them better and some of them worse. At one point, uh, this young woman asked, she said, what kind of a God would ask a man to sacrifice his own son like God asked Abraham to do? And I asked her if she knew the end of that story from the Old Testament, and she didn't. And I got to tell her about how God himself provided a lamb for that sacrifice and how God has provided the perfect lamb to pay for our sins through the sacrifice of his own son. She didn't go away convinced, as far as I could tell, but that is up to God. We don't evangelize alone. We do it as part of the church, and ultimately it is not our doing. It is God's. Myth number three, sharing the gospel requires special gifts or training. That's not true. 
Now, it's true that training can be helpful. We can sharpen our articulation of the gospel. We can learn more effective ways to listen and ask questions of people. We can benefit from reading books like Tim Keller's Reason for God and Making Sense of God to learn better how to discuss with people who aren't coming where we're coming from. Uh, it's also true that some people have a special gift of evangelism, but that great commission comes to all of us believers, and we should not be paralyzed by a fear that we're not some sort of experts. The truth that overturns this myth is this. Sharing the gospel is for people with good news. I love the story of Jesus and the Samaritan woman by the well in John 4. You know that story. When Jesus told her... He told her who he was. That woman went right back into her town and called the people to come and see this man. She was so overjoyed by having met Jesus that her joy just naturally overflowed. Verse 39 says, Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. Now, the woman did not understand much at that point, but she told the people what she knew about Jesus, and she brought them to him to listen to his words. And verse 41 says, And many more believed because of his word, Jesus' word. They said to the woman, It is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. This is ultimate good news, and we have it, all of us believers, and sharing the gospel is for people with good news. Myth number four, sharing the gospel should emphasize love rather than judgment. In other words, it's better not to talk about hell. A good friend recently told me about a gospel conversation with a friend at the sports center. Her friend's very first question as they talked was, so are you saying I'll go to hell if I don't believe this? That was her first question. My friend described that agonizing moment when she had to choose how to answer that question. I remember a conversation from long ago when my husband and I and our young children were living in London for a couple of years, and I was having coffee one morning with a lovely neighbor I'd met down at the parish church just down the lane. This neighbor was married to a man of a different faith, and I remember her comment to me as we stood in the sunny kitchen holding our coffee cups. She said that she believed God was loving enough to save her husband, who was a good man and sincere in his faith. I remember so vividly how in that moment I was just quiet, not knowing what to say, even though I desperately wanted to talk about the gospel with her. Certainly there are times to wait and times to speak, but the point is that we mustn't pretend we don't believe in God's final judgment on those who do not believe. The struggle to speak truthfully and sensitively about this does not get easier with years. It's hard. It's hard to read, for example, 2 Thessalonians 1. Have you read it lately? About the final judgment of Jesus. It says, inflaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. The Bible from beginning to end is agonizingly honest about the wrath of God towards sin. The irony is that only in understanding a holy God's just wrath can we understand the meaning of the cross. At the cross, God 
poured his wrath on his son. Jesus suffered God's wrath in our place, bearing our sin. At the cross, God's just judgment and God's amazing love joined together to accomplish our salvation. This is something to talk about. The truth that puts this myth in its place is this. Sharing the whole gospel, including God's wrath, is the most loving thing we can do. The fifth and final myth is this. We'll get to it when we have time. If the eternal torment of hell is not a myth, but, but true, then the myth that we'll eventually get to the task of evangelism is not only self-deluding, but it's ultimately selfish. The question is, which is more real to me right now? On the one hand, my visible present comfort or on the other hand, the invisible realities that are right there and that will in a moment burst on our sight when Jesus comes again and shows himself to us in all his glory. And then evangelism will be over. Think of it. The Lord God will call every single person who's ever lived from all the corners of the globe and out of all the graves and the earth and seas to stand before his throne. Do we really believe this? The truth that sets straight this final myth is this. Sharing the gospel is urgent. Here's my final story. I just read it recently as told by Mark Dever in his good little book, The Gospel and Personal Evangelism. Dever researched the story of a Scottish preacher, good story for here, uh, named John Harper. He was born in Glasgow, Scotland, in 1872. Harper became a Christian when he was 14 years old. He began to preach when he was 17. He became a well-known preacher, especially well-known for his heart for sharing the gospel. Moody Church in Chicago invited him over for some special evangelistic services. They went so well that they invited him back. And so it happened, writes Dever, that Harper boarded a ship one day with a second-class ticket at Southampton, England, for the voyage to America. Now, Harper's wife had recently died, but he had with him his one child, a six-year-old daughter named Nana. Nana survived that voyage. She lived to the age of 80, and she remembers her father awakening her at midnight on that ship, several days out to sea, and he told her that their ship had struck an iceberg, and he put her on a lifeboat with a cousin who had accompanied them. The ship, of course, was the Titanic. We know what happened to John Harper from the testimony of another passenger who survived, a man who stood up just a few months later in a prayer meeting in Hamilton, Ontario, and in tears told the story of his conversion. Dever writes, <clears throat> This man explained that he had been on the Titanic that night, and he had been finally left clinging to a piece of floating debris in the freezing waters. In his testimony, he said this, Suddenly, a wave brought a man near. It was John Harper. Harper, too, was holding on to a piece of wreckage. And he called out, Man, are you saved? No, I am not, I replied. He shouted back, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved. The waves bore Harper away, but a little later he was washed back beside me again. Are you saved now, he called out. <laughs> no, I answered. And again, Harper cried out, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. And then, losing his hold on the wood, Harper sank. And there, alone in the night, with two miles of water under me, 
I trusted Christ as my Savior. I am John Harper's last convert, said that man. So we'll end with that extraordinary story and with that vivid picture of the urgency of telling the gospel. I know it's not always that literally urgent, and it's not as if most people are really floating out in freezing seas holding on for dear life to pieces of wreckage about to drown. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for sending your Son to save us. Please strike our hearts by your Spirit with the joy and the urgency of the gospel good news for the glory of Jesus our Savior. Amen.